News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi today. Well, starting in prime time today, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol is setting out to establish the historical record of the event damaging not only a community or an individual, but the collective idea of democracy. More than 100 subpoenas, 1,000 interviews, and 100,000 documents, and we go from there uh, to find out what is going to happen next. And joining us to look at this is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Good morning. What are we expecting when this goes prime time today? Look, we're expecting uh, a lot, especially when it comes to the amount of information that has been gathered, as you had just mentioned, over uh, the last year. The select committee was put together on June 30th of last year, uh, and there, outside of a couple of leaks, there has been very little that has been uh, kind of thrown into the public eye over the last year. Uh, and given the fact that this is a primetime hearing, and I think what's also important about this is it's being overseen by a former uh, network TV producer, uh, to kind of give it a little bit of uh, of some guts here, uh, we're going to see things that we haven't seen before. Depositions, including conversations with members of the Trump family, including Jared Kushner, who played a key role in the administration. There's going to be a lot here that some people are going to say, well, I think I already knew that. The goal here for Democrats is going to try and sway the opinions of the other side who have really been ignoring this. And what is the purpose, do you think, or, or what will the reaction be with this going prime time? Well, I think it plays two different roles here. Number one, oftentimes these hearings are held during the middle of the day. There's very few people that have access to a TV to be able to watch this or who are interested in turning on the TV in the middle of the day to watch C-SPAN or click on YouTube uh, to get the information. Number two, bringing this to a primetime audience, it gets key people on the East and West Coast, and it just drives the matter home to the American public that this is a big deal. We are taking over network television uh, in order to provide uh, a glimpse into that moment in American history where democracy was on the line. Of course, this is facing Republican pushback. This committee has faced Republican pushback uh, for the last year or so, but this ultimately is going to be the first of six hearings, and it really is going to be the last chance here for Democrats to try and get this story out to the public. And I guess we'll kind of have to wait and see on this one, but I would imagine it'll, it'll a lot of people will be looking at how many people will be gathering around the TV and watching this. So when you look at the difference of where we're at now compared to, to when we've seen things like this in the past and how people view, because that is so much different now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is. Uh, there is kind of a hope here amongst the Democrats and amongst this committee, which does include two uh, Republicans who are on the anti-Trump uh, side uh, of the fence. There is a real hope here that the information that they bring forward is not simply going to be, uh, you know, uh, a nothing burger. It's going to have uh, the information uh, and the details that could potentially sway the midterm elections here. There is a real hope that people are going to tune in. Is that going to happen? It's something that, you know, the, the, this committee is simply going to have to wait to see. But given the fact that there is so much information that is uh, coming out over the next several hearings that has not been released to the public, 
in the moments until it finally makes its way to the light, um, there are real opportunities here for this committee, for Democrats, to finally put that nail in the coffin to say, we've been telling you that this was a threat all along. We've been telling you uh, that there was, uh, you know, Republican members of Congress that were integrally involved in this uh, in this scheme to overthrow the election. That's what Democrats are going to try to use to th- this force tonight. And you mentioned Donald Trump and the Trump family. Uh, so how how heavy do you think the focus is the focus going to be on that part of it? Well, I mean, look, this committee has been trying to find the person or persons responsible and hold them accountable uh, for what was arguably a dark day uh, in in American history. Uh, And and there has been questions. Did Donald Trump lead this from the top? Were there people around Donald Trump who were feeding into this and giving the president uh, this idea that this election could be overturned? This is going to play. uh, Donald Trump is going to play a significant role in this only because it was his speech in the moments that led up to uh, the attack on the Capitol, that rally that was held at the Ellipse. Uh, That was the central part of this. But there were so many people involved in that rally. Donald Trump, members of Congress, Rudy Giuliani. These are going to be the people that Democrats try to hone in on to say that they ginned up uh, a base that was already angry, that they fed lies into a base uh, that that believed that uh, American elections are not safe uh, and, and that the integrity of them simply doesn't exist. So the former president will play a role. So, too, are so many other people that surrounded him for so long. And Reggie, you kind of touched on this, but when people, are, if they are tuning in and they are watching this this evening, are they going to, to have details? Are they going to, to learn things that we simply have not heard or seen before? Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting about the way that this is being done tonight over this kind of 90 minutes starting at 8 o'clock Washington, D.C. time uh, is that they're going to jump right in to opening statements, trying to deliver the information. There will be uh, testimony from uh, a, a former Capitol Police officer who was injured uh, during that attack. This is going to be information. This is almost going to, to kind of relive those moments of the impeachment where the, these uh, Democrats come out and they immediately just start throwing the information out there with these opening speeches. And what we've been told is that Representative Liz Cheney is going to play uh, a leading role in the opening part uh, of this process, likely getting the the bulk of the time tonight because she's a Republican, because there is a hope that she may be able to reach out to other Republicans that are watching, that are in Washington, that are around the country and bring them to you know a, a realization that things may not be the way that they've been told. There's going to be a real reliance here on the fact that this is technically a bipartisan committee. And so 90 minutes, and then at the end of 90 minutes, uh, Reggie, what happens next? So at the end of the 90 minutes, I mean, the networks will go and do their own kind of breakdowns uh, of everything. But for the committee itself, it will pause. It will reconvene on Monday morning. It's unclear if we're going to see any more of these nighttime events before this moves back into the kind of uh, regular court for how hearings play out uh, in D.C. But this is going to be a a six or seven hearing uh, uh, incident before, uh, you know, ultimately Democrats do whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish with this. Is it going to lead? charges probably not the department of justice would be the one having to uh you know deal with that and they are conducting a parallel investigation i think what we have to remember here jill is that democrats are running out of time in washington there is a very easy chance uh, that they lose power uh, in at least the House at the end of the midterms this year. So if they do that and this committee were to be shut down, this will be that final opportunity to get the information out there, to put it on the record, and ultimately, in Democrats' eyes, 
give it to the voters as they head into the voting boxes later this year. All right. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much, as always, uh, for joining us. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. And again, uh, the committee revealing those findings going prime time this evening. 6.20 on this Thursday morning. We know municipal elections are just a few months away, so we're starting to hear the promises from candidates on what they will do. So looking at Vancouver, Mayor Kennedy Stewart is taking a look at keeping bars open later. Let's check in with our show contributor, Raji Sohal, for more on this. Good morning. Hi, Jill. This one always makes me laugh because it resurfaces every couple of years. Let's go to 3 a.m. Let's harmonize 3 a.m. Let's harmonize 4 a.m. Let's just keep them open all night long. And Mayor Kennedy Stewart saying that if he's reelected and, and he push it, we can push the uh, open hour till later for bars is not going to do the thing that he says it's going to do because he says Vancouver needs a thriving nightlife to attract people to travel here. And his reasoning is that he's traveled to all these cosmopolitan cities with uh, thriving arts and culture, Paris, London, New York. And he says they all have a more relaxed attitude about drinking. It's like, okay, they also have totally different cultural norms. They have totally different histories. They're also way older as cities. And I don't know the last time that Stuart walked the Granville Strip after 2 a.m., but uh, it's not, let me tell you, about people cultivating the arts at that hour. You know what they're doing? They're brawling. There are people at 3 a.m. on the streets vomiting on sidewalks. There's groups of men barking at each other on Granville Street. They are fist fighting. There's a lot of yelling. I've never felt sorrier for a bouncer than at 3 a.m. on Granville Street. <laughs> so it is not the elevated culture that Stuart is talking about. And if he wants to improve culture in Vancouver, I think he should look at relaxing patio and picnic life more. I think he needs to think about embracing bikes and walking like the cities that he talks about do. Like Paris already does that. London, New York, people love their transit there. People in those cities, they love transit. They walk places. They take up public space. Their parks are filled. I was in London a couple of months ago. Every single park on the weekend afternoon was just packed. Every single park, East End, West End. And you know what? Don't charge admission to gems like Van Dusen Garden. Figure stuff like that out. Make parking prices more accessible so people get out and, and enjoy culture and enjoy the city of Vancouver. The answer to improving Vancouver's arts and culture scene is not letting a small group of people drink until they're obliterated at 3 a.m. I thought it was an odd one, too, in that I think if you just went out and even did a quick poll on what really needs to change in Vancouver. What would make the city better? I can't imagine you would get a ton of people saying, oh, I know, we need to keep the bars open till 3 a.m. That's what's going to cause this positive change. It, it doesn't seem to me like that would be on the top of the priority list for many people. Totally. So on Sunday mornings, I am at uh, the Vancouver TD Tower right in the center of downtown. I come super early uh, to do my Sunday morning show. When I do, let me tell you, the stragglers that I see, because I'll be at work at about four o'clock in the morning, they are still coming out of the Granville Street strip. They are wandering around at that hour, uh, many of them drunk or high, and it does not add in any way to a sense of being more prideful of our city and enjoying our city more. If anything, it makes me feel when I'm wandering around that area, walking to from my car to the building, it makes me feel unsafe. 
So I think that, uh, yeah, he needs to look at his priorities. And, and as we start to get all of these promises before the municipal elections, I think we got to wonder about people's motivations. And it is, I mean, I guess if some of the liquor, pri- or for, sorry, food primary places are asking for this because other places are open till 3 a.m., fine. But, you know, it's something that you could also just make the change because, like you say, it's already kind of a, a crap show at that time of day on Granville Street. Make the change. But again, don't don't put it out there as this huge shift and this is going to fix all of these problems. Yeah, he talks about how Vancouver is a tourist destination. Absolutely. But is it a tourist destination because of our liquor license deals? No, it's not. You know what? I think even if things closed at 1 a.m. or everything was harmonized to 2 a.m., but resources were put elsewhere during the day to invite more people to feel included, to participate in culture in Vancouver, I mean, that's going to make a real difference. That'll make a dent. I don't believe that going later for a tiny group of people that wants to party hard is going to change our city. Besides, how many people come to Vancouver for being able to stay out till 2 or 3 a.m.? I don't think that's what draws people to Vancouver. All right. Well, we uh, have put that to our listeners this morning. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. That is our question of the day as well. Would you like to see bars in downtown Vancouver, those that currently can't stay open till 3 a.m.? Does it make sense? Would you like to see them open till 3 a.m.? Give us a call on the buzz line or email me, Jill at CKNW. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, we have been talking a lot about developments, the permitting process, why it takes so long in some cases. Why do housing plans that take what seems like forever to approve in parts of BC? Well, a recent example could be the Broadway plan that has divided many in the city on whether or not it's a good idea. There's a new editorial, it's in the Globe and Mail newspaper, arguing that plans like this should be passed more quickly and uh, something that should be happening not only here, but elsewhere in the country as well. So joining us to talk about this is Kit Souter, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. Thank you so much for being with us. Morning, Jill. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Great. How about you? Doing great. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? This is a kind of a bigger piece looking at uh, development permits and the permitting process in general. Uh, But the title kind of sums it up. The land where any plan to build more housing risks being studied to death. Uh, What are your thoughts on that and how it applies to what we're seeing on Broadway? Yeah, so just off the top, I I think that your outlining and framing of of the issue itself, where you talked about the Broadway plan needing to be passed faster, right, kind of lies at the root of of the problem in the public discussion here. So I actually agree with some of the opponents of the Broadway plan that the timeline on this was important, right? Making sure that we take our time to get these things right is really critically necessary. But the thing that a lot of folks who are speaking to this issue, um, considering this issue outside of the council chambers, don't seem to understand is that the Broadway plan is a local area plan that then actually doesn't change how quickly we permit or allow the building of, of new buildings in that area. It just guides the development process over the next 30 years. So that's really what lies at the root of the problem is when we do local area planning, we should certainly take a couple of years to consult with everyone in the community to take our time to listen and hear what folks imagine for the future and need in the present. But once we get through that process, once we get to today, right, where council's considering this plan that, that covers uh, 12% of the population of the city, 8.9 square kilometers, and one in four jobs in Metro Vancouver, um, we need to be able to get it passed 
And we need to get to a place where when new buildings are proposed, it doesn't kick off another multi-week, multi-month, multi-year cycle of review and approval. Right. So the idea being that that the time for that conversation or the time for that input is in the passing of the bigger picture plan, not each individual building. Yeah, that, that is that is what I'd say. So once we get to a place where we're comfortable with, for instance, the um, up to 40 story towers on top of the subway um, platforms, which I have advocated to mayor and council should actually be approved for up to 80 stories. But there's been a compromise that's been made. And the community has been heard in saying that they are concerned that those tower heights are too tall. Um, I just hope that everyone acknowledges that that's a huge trade-off where uh, the density that could have been built on top of those podiums would have paid for amenities in the neighborhood and uh, would have supported uh, supportive rentals um, for literally dozens and dozens of families. So if you look at that specific case, what we should get to is we should get to a place where cases like 1477 West Broadway should be um, a matter of review the plan and get a, get ahead of it and, and get it approved instead of what we're seeing, which is weeks of contention, hours and hours of council time eaten up. And then what ends up happening is that the, the building is still built um, and a whole bunch of civic energy and uh, debate is spent on the process instead of building something that everyone can trust and believe in and then moving forward at a relatively stable pace. Right. Interesting. When you say that, though, does that bring up another issue when you say uh, we go through all of this and the building is still built? And, and do you think that's kind of where people lose their faith in, in civic governments or, I guess, in the process in that even when you have these hours and hours of debate and public hearings, in the end, council decides the way council was going to decide before all of that anyway? Yeah, so I think that we have a fundamentally broken hearing process in Vancouver. Um, I don't think that it is in the best interest of our city and our society for a 33-year-old uh, young business owner, nonprofit uh, leader, and father of a two-and-a-half-year-old to have to be publicly advocating over the course of weeks against the competing interests of vested landowners on Kids Point who don't want shadows in their backyard. I think that that is a, a stack deck and a rig game. And I think that people who are already retired already have an enormous amount of vested capital and already have ample time to spend um, trying to shape the future of the city makes a system that is by its very nature contentious, by its very nature emotionally fraught, and by its very nature completely unfair to the people who are actually currently working the hardest to build the city. Um, and I want to thank everyone who has been in this city for decades and made it as phenomenal as it is. But the place that we're at right now is we have a tiny number of people who are trying to make it impossible for the rest of Vancouverites to be able to reasonably find a house. For instance, under the Broadway plan, the plan includes a requirement that for any building with more than six units of housing included in it, one out of uh, 10 of them would have to be a three bedroom plus unit. And so that is not currently required in any local area plans in the city right now. And as a result of that, because we haven't had substantive purposeful rental building over the last 35 years, less than 1% of all of the rental units in the city are three bedroom plus. I'm in a two bedroom plus Danville. Mm -hmm. I barely have enough room for my two and a half year old, my wife and I, and we're hoping that we can have another kid. But the reality is that we're going to have to make some tough choices again, just like we did a year ago, two years ago when my daughter was born and we only had a one bedroom in Den where we slept on the floor of our living room and my daughter learned how to sleep in our bedroom. 
Right. And but do you think then this plan and and the the fact that you're advocating for this plan the way it is then d- does it fix that? Will it actually bring solutions to that issue? Yeah, so the Broadway plan will provide a degree of certainty to developers. It'll provide clarity to people in the community and it'll provide guidance on how we invest and grow our city. The reason that I'm supportive for it and the, the reason that I want to see it pass is because the Broadway plan goes a long way to get us towards where I hope we ultimately get to, which is that it gets passed, it gets used as a template and a model for development and growth in the city, where we see lots of mixed density, we use the model of the West End, and the Vancouver plan, which is a plan to make many more local area plans, gets us another step forward to a place where in three to five years from now, I'm hoping we have local area plans across the entire city that are all new up to the last 10 years. There's consensus and consent for us to move ahead with streamlining um, approvals and getting buildings built as of right on the properties when they're purchased by their landowners. Because I think that when people work hard to buy land, they should be able to do what they like with it instead of spending three to seven years jumping through bureaucratic hoops. Right. And kind of like if we go back in history, when if you were building a Vancouver special, you would get the rubber stamp. It wasn't the same process of, say, if you were proposing a different type of structure or a totally different house, making it, I guess, more kind of uh, efficient templates. Yeah. And, and let's look at the specific history of the Vancouver special. So the Vancouver special allowed for a revolution in affordability in housing in Vancouver between the 1960s and the early 1980s. What ended up happening was in the late 1970s, we had a large refugee crisis with the Vietnamese boat people, an enormous number of uh, Asian emigres, and there was a push in public policy to try and restrict affordable housing options because there were people in the city who didn't want to see uh, a very large number of non-English speaking, non-white people take up space on the east side of the city. So in 1983, the council passed restrictions on the Vancouver Special and ended one of the most affordable building structures in the history of the city. So what I'd like us to do, because I think we've moved on from that ugly history, is we should move to a place where we get five or six versions of a Vancouver Special, where we can get some kind of courtyard apartment building that you see on a lot of the west side and in the west end that people love, where you see four and six story multiplexes on lots only as wide as 25 feet. We're seeing them being built in Paris right now. We're seeing them being built in Brooklyn right now. You could have a single family home converted into six 1,500 square foot units. And the people who own that property could live in those units, have their family live in the units, and we could start planning for multi-generational living in the city for the first time in 40, 50 years. All right, Kit, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joe. Have a great day. You too. Kit Sauter, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. We've been talking a little bit about monkeypox, some concerns because of the number of cases in countries that don't normally see the virus. Experts still saying that the risk of outbreaks, that the risk of those does remain low. Uh, Mornings with Simi show producer Jason Manawas caught up with Dr. Brian Conway, medical director and infectious disease specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre to find out more about this. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Conway. What do we know so far about the monkeypox virus? The monkeypox virus is endemic in certain parts of Africa. Individuals will become infected, can develop a fever, they can feel unwell, they can develop a rash, but in the vast majority of cases, the illness is self-limited and it resolves completely. 
It has now spread to many parts of North America, including the west coast of Canada. And I think that this travel advisory is meant to remind us to potentially avoid going to places where it is endemic already and then inadvertently increase the spread back to North America. Now, in saying all of that, what should our concern level be? Our concern level should be very low. This is an illness that is almost always transmitted from people who are already sick. Either they have a rash or they just feel sick. And we already know with COVID around that if you're sick, you stay home. So this will apply to everything, including individuals who may theoretically be incubating monkeypox. So it's a, it's a reminder to avoid people who are already sick and ask them to stay home. If you think you might have monkeypox, which in some cases may be confused with the much more common chickenpox, please consult immediately so that a healthcare professional can help determine what you might have. And if there is a risk that you have monkeypox, take appropriate measures to understand where you got it, to take care of you and to limit onward spread. Now with travel continuing to ramp up, is there anything that you expect from public health officials as we learn more from the monkeypox virus? Well, I think public health officials are monitoring very closely how many cases are occurring, confirmed cases, where it is spreading, and more importantly, how it is being spread and how we might interrupt spread. So right now, we're really at that stage that we know it's around. So we have a very high index of suspicion to look for it. And beyond that, uh, let's see uh, let's see what happens. But again, stay away from people who are sick. If you're sick, you think you might have it, go see a healthcare provider, and let's see where we end up. Now, Dr. Conway, are there any steps that people should know about in making sure that they don't contract this virus or spread it? Well, once again, this is not a virus or an illness that spreads from people who are asymptomatic. The vast majority of of cases come from people who are already sick. So stay away from sick people. We're used to this with COVID, and it's all the more important with many other infections, including monkeypox. And if you have an illness, if you have a rash with uh, blisters, especially on your face, please go see a healthcare provider to get it sorted out. Now that actually leads to my last question. What lessons have we learned from COVID when dealing with any new virus, including monkeypox? I think we're very aware of the consequences of ignoring things in terms of hoping that things will pass. We have a much more rigorous approach I think, to the identification of new infections, identification of transmission networks and strategies to interrupt these transmission networks. And I think that's what we're seeing now, a very rapid, rational, and well-explained response. And we may need to do this again for other infections. So let's just do things the best way we can as we've learned to do in COVID world. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, thank you so much. That was Jason Manawas, who is the producer of this program and talking to Dr. Brian Conway, medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. Well, BC is seeing an increase in the number of fire-related deaths in this province. So far in the first five months of the year, 33 deaths fire-related. That's compared to about 24 to 27 deaths normally recorded for an entire year in the province. So what is causing this increase? Joining us now is Matthew Trudeau, a public information officer with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Uh, so uh, clearly the number is not going in the right direction or certainly raising some concerns. Why is it or do we know why we're seeing an increase in fire-related deaths? Yeah, obviously a concern anytime we have any fire deaths, but especially when it's uh, on an increase reported from the BC Fire Commissioner's Office. Um, especially during this time, that the significant change we're seeing is is obviously I think COVID had uh, quite a do. Uh, a lot to do with the way we're occupying our time and a lot of the changes that people are making in, in their lives, especially spending more time at home. We're seeing the, the increase of happening in residential dwellings, uh, in places where, where people are living and sleeping. And I think that was um, a big contributing factor to this, uh, to this increase. And the number of deaths, too, because I think maybe it might be a surprise to people when we look at technology and we look at fire suppression technology that, that's used in buildings, and it seems like we don't see as many fires as perhaps we've seen in the past. So it seems like a bit of a disconnect that we're seeing an increase in deaths. Actually, um, it's actually quite the opposite. We're seeing a large number of increase in fire activity. Um, specific, my stats were, are specific to, to Vancouver. Since 2016, we've seen a 91% increase in fires with damage. Uh, it's a, a significant uh, number that's on the increase. Uh, from 2020 to 2021, we saw a 20% increase in, in fires with damage. Um, and our reportable fires have gone up um, substantially as well. So on, on the whole, we're seeing um, an increase in fires, increase in fire damage. And if we look at a percentage um, with that, we're, we're seeing um, increase in fire deaths as well. And is that too, do, do you think then, are we able to connect that to, like you said, the, that shift in behaviors and that more people are at home and that's what's a factor in that? Historically, when we see significant changes in behavior and anything affecting our society and the way we live, we, we see in, in, um, inherent changes in the way that we behave and the way we interact with our surroundings. And we saw this throughout um, the, the 80s and 90s when a lot of the materials, uh, there was a significant challenge for the fire service, was switching from uh, natural fibers that we occupy our, our homes with wood tables, wood furniture, nat- natural products, and now switching to synthetics uh, where we have uh, significantly hotter fires burning faster and uh, significantly more toxic fires as well. Created, created a severe, um, uh, a, a large demand on the fire service to respond to that. And we're seeing now uh, societal changes in the way that we occupy our houses uh, more often for a longer duration. And on top of that, we're seeing um, more batteries in, in people's homes. And since 2016, we've seen a five times increase in the number of battery fires in, in homes as well. Hmm. And, and I was going to ask you if there was any kind of pattern or link as far as what's starting the fires. So is it is it starting, like you said, battery fires? Are you seeing any other trends uh, that are that is leading or that are leading to the actual what's starting these fires? Yeah, our numbers are along the, the same lines as uh, what came out in the report provincial-wide. We're seeing uh, the same elevated numbers for, for kitchen fires where... Uh, people sometimes do become distracted and they walk away from from cooking or from hot surfaces. Um, we're, we're seeing a uh, the number one increase we're seeing in the 
the most significant um, cause of fires is still smoking materials and, and products related to that, including um, lighters, butane lighters, matches, obviously cigarettes, discarded smoking material, uh, that being our number one source of, of fires currently. And again, the intake, um, up intake of battery fires is, is creating quite a problem um, in the city, provincial-wide, and in, in a lot of areas. And what about the ages of people? Are we seeing uh, any particular group where uh, they're, pro- they're more susceptible or more vulnerable when it comes to, to, to succumbing to uh, a fire? Yeah, we're seeing it's, it's affecting some of our, our elderly population um, at higher numbers than, than other populations. And it, it might have had to do with some impacts uh, with, to do with uh, some isolation, um, but we're, we're definitely encouraging people to check in on, on people who have any kind of mobility issues or medical problems to ensure that their smoke alarms are maintained, their batteries are changed, and you're just checking in on, on your, your loved ones, anyone who needs additional uh, time to get out, um, and just to keep up on, on some of the older population. Right. And, and you mentioned, too, the smoke detectors and, and things like that. Is it also an issue? Or are we seeing uh, fires that were starting when you, noted, when you commented on the, the increase in the number of fires that we're having? Are they mainly or are we seeing a trend there as far as in buildings that maybe don't have working sprinkler systems or where fire um, smoke detectors and fire detectors haven't been in use? For sure. We're seeing... Um in increase in, in, in risk and injury and death when people don't have uh, a working smoke alarm. When, when you do have a working smoke alarm and there is a sprinkler system, we're seeing that the, the injuries and deaths are, are, are significantly reduced, upwards of 50% um, from the BC numbers, but we're seeing the same similar statistics that we, we keep going back to our core messaging of in, make sure your smoke alarms are working inside your units and outside your sleeping areas. And, um, and sprinklers do save lives um, in, in containing, if a fire does happen, in containing it to a unit and until fire crews arrive. And, uh, and understand too then the province has put together this dashboard uh, working with Statistics Canada and putting these numbers together uh, to really put out that information, who's most at risk, what communities are at greatest risk of home fires. Is it hoped then that that information, that dashboard will help identify that and prevent future fires? Absolutely. Our first, uh, as, as we, we, we stand firm in making sure that our first line of defense is, is education and awareness and making sure that people get this information that's, that's critical uh, to preventing these injuries and deaths and making sure yeah, that people are aware of these, um, that this is, these are like very serious um, conditions that if we have a fire in, in a unit that um, having a smoke alarm it is is going to significantly increase your likelihood of exiting and getting your family out safely. So hopefully with this information, getting to crucial areas will will have a big impact on getting these numbers under control and reducing them significantly. All right. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us uh, to go through these numbers uh, and hopefully uh, get that information out there and, and get the number of fatalities and, and fires down. But thank you so much for joining us today. 
Absolutely. Thanks a lot for your time today. All right. That is Matthew Trudeau, Public Information Officer with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. Uh, Thanks again so much for your time this morning. Well, there is a new age minimum for figure skating and the competitors at Olympics. That age is now 17. It follows the disturbing doping controversy that took place in Beijing involving a 15-year-old Russian skater. So what kind of change in competition ages has been made or what does this mean for competition? Well, show contributor Raji Sohal joins us again to talk more about this. This is a big move. Yeah, it is. It's a dramatic move. So the change to minimum age requirement that was, uh, this was made after the IOC claims to be shocked at learning how much pressure was put on a very young Russian skater, a girl really, Camila Valieva, and a doping scandal that encircled the her and the Russian team. But Jill, if you talk to any pro or elite figure skater directly. The stories of doping are rampant. It's not that everyone's doing it, but certain teams are, and it's a known fact. And these Russian skaters, they often, they leave the system. Once they're burnt out, they'll go to the States uh, or to Canada, and they'll work with uh, former elite skaters. And and some of them have admit to drinking cocktails in the past, given to them by their coaches when they were very young. They've taken pills, or uh, I have personally heard that uh, they'll train, you know, in whatever way they're coaches had told them to they take whatever they're asked to and I talked to an Olympic gold medalist uh, here in Vancouver he happens to be a Vancouverite the well-decorated figure skater Patrick Chan and he was telling me that he's heard these stories since he's been in skating and he knows about achieving success in the sport very early he started out skating very seriously at the age of six uh, which meant that he ended up hitting those senior ranks younger than most figure skaters so he knows about the pressures that they put on athletes who, uh, frankly, are too young mentally, let alone physically, to, to handle international competition. I had the right people to help me. I had the right coaches, the right parents to guide me and, and you know, know when to push, when not to push. I was lucky enough, really. That's what I'm trying to say is like I was lucky enough to not have to deal with, you know, some of the pressures that some of the young skaters that especially these past olympics we saw we witnessed kind of a bit of the drama from um on the from the the woman the russian woman uh competition and i i luckily never had to experience that kind of pressure from um, my coaches or my country so i think this decision this historical decision is so positive for the sport you know first and foremost the, the health of the athletes both mentally and physically and um, I think for the long term, the sport is going to benefit so much. The, the younger generation will have um, lasting stars or skating idols to, to, to witness and, and look up to. We won't have these skaters that go to one Olympics and sure, maybe they win an Olympic gold medal, but then, then you never hear of them again. Um, so I think this is just such a positive um, direction uh, for, for the sport. But not everyone says that it's the right direction. In fact, some people, some groups are critical of the change to minimum age competition age because they say that some kids are ready to compete as as young as age 15 and they don't want to see them uh, be punished because of fear of possible doping. But Patrick Chan says that this rule might not actually change doping In fact, he sees them as two entirely different issues. He said that raising the competition age to 17, though, uh, it has other positive effects. 
honestly, in my, my opinion, I think the the doping is a totally different issue. I think um, the that that's that's another whole a whole another beast to to um, overcome and and to I guess fix. It's a it's a really um, I think it's an issue that's been going on for a long time um and it, it there's no place for it in in amateur sports um and i i can't believe in today's day and age we're still um witnessing positive um tests and um doping scandals you know if we think about how young these athletes are being pushed to the to the limits i mean the the drugs that are being used is is in order for them to continue training at such a high intensity um and for a 15-year-old to, to be experiencing that kind of um, physical toll is, uh, is, is, is inappropriate. I don't think it's safe. It's, it, there's no place for that kind of, um, uh, for adults to be pushing these young athletes like that. Um, so I think this decision to raise the age, will we'll see proper development of young figure skaters, the proper methods of training both on and off the ice where we're talking not just the physical development of these these athletes these young athletes but also the mental development you know coaches officials committees all of these entities jill they all have their own agenda and it's not always to look out for the athlete's best interests. I think some of them would stop at nothing to win a gold medal. So I feel like if a child athlete doesn't have uh, parents following them very closely, the way that Patrick Chan was lucky to, if they don't have them present at a practice, there with them for all of that travel that takes place internationally, I think these athletes get taken advantage of. They get exploited. Uh, just look at what happened in the States with women's gymnastics. I mean, that was an entire system, every level of chain of command, knew what was going on. No one protected these girl athletes. So in my opinion, bumping the age up for figure skating competition to a minimum of age 17 at the International uh, Olympics at this that high level, I think it's a uh, high time and an important change. An interesting one too, and like you touched on in that conversation, though uh, some concerns if there are 15-year-olds or even athletes right now training for the next Olympics or, or when this comes into place that will get caught up in this and will have their competition delayed. Yeah, they might have their competition delayed. And I think like them's the breaks. You, I think it's a good and important change and they should institute it as, as as early as possible. In fact, you know, I wonder if this will move on to other sports. Will it deter some people from training extremely competitively at a, at a young age regardless? I mean, maybe not. Maybe some people, some parents, some coaches will still go for it. But I think it sends a message that uh, whether they actually care or not, they are showing a precedent for um, concern uh, of people's age and physical and mental toll at that age of competing so hard. All right. Uh, interesting one. Uh, certainly getting a, a lot of discussion. Ranji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. That is CKNW Mornings with Simi contributor, Raji Sohal. If you want to weigh in on this or anything on your mind, give us a call 604-331-2899 or email me jill at cknw.com.
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, we know that groceries are expensive, gas is expensive, everything seems to cost more. So, is it still worthwhile if you live relatively close to the border? Is it worthwhile to head to the states, maybe Bellingham or Blaine, and try and get some deals there? Let's check in with Guy Ochio Grosso, President and CEO of the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce. Guy, great to chat with you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Well, are you seeing a lot of BC plates in your neck of the woods? Uh, Absolutely, especially as compared to the last, oh, I don't know, two years or so. Uh, And it's great to have our Canadian neighbors back um, experiencing and shopping in multiple uh, stores and I would say doing the things that everyone liked to do before the pandemic started. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so I know we talked about this when the restrictions were lifted, specifically the restriction of not having to test when driving yeah. to and from. And, and there were a lot of people, I think, like you said, it was a couple of years, people hadn't crossed the border. So a lot of people were quick to do that. To, a, apart from that kind of surge of people when the restrictions first lifted, has that kind of maintained? It certainly feels that it has. I've not checked uh, the border crossing numbers uh, because it certainly has not felt like it's regressed. Uh, it feels that uh, we're still seeing um, Canadians coming in about the same rate, maybe even a little more depending upon the weekend. Um, I think some of the traditional trends that have always um you know, held water, if you will, uh, Canadian long weekend, we're going to see some more Canadians come down and shop. And I think that holds true. Uh, some of those beloved stores um, that see large volumes of Canadian shoppers are still seeing that. Like we're still seeing uh, Canadian license plates. And it's so hard to, to do true comparisons because even before the pandemic, uh, to my point about Canadian long weekends or even seasonality is we would have to compare and we want to compare year to year. So Canadian Thanksgiving to Canadian Thanksgiving over an annual basis. And we just don't have that ability right now because of the pandemic and everything that happened. Um, I don't think we would want to compare you know, when we get there later this year, Canadian Thanksgiving of 2022 compared to 2019. I don't, I don't know how much value there would be in comparing those numbers. Uh, but to your question, yes, we are still seeing um, a, 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 what I would call a healthy volume of Canadian shoppers. Interesting. And yeah, you talk about kind of the the beloved stores, maybe things that people can't get on the Canadian side of the border. When Mm -hmm. we look specifically at things like gas and groceries, though, with the dollar and the way things are, uh, does it appear to you that there are still deals to be had for Canadians? Uh, So the the easy answer to that is yes. Um, And I think deals comes in the form of multiple multiple scenarios. Things to your point, there are things that Canadian shoppers can get on this side of the border that you cannot get in Canada. Uh, and that has always been a huge driver. Uh, there's the, the, the price point. Um, and I think based upon U.S. distribution models, U.S. consumption, uh, at times for certain products, it's just cheaper. Like if you were true, if you could compare a dollar per dollar scenario 
some things are cheaper on this side. And uh, yes, to your point, anytime gas increases, you see you see travel start to wind down. And I do think that is something that is worth watching uh, over the next little bit. Uh, as I said, not seeing, I mean, just look at the border wait time. Um, that doesn't tell me that Canadians are slowing down or stopping uh, because of a, an increase in gas. If it gets prolonged, then we probably will have something to worry about. Right. Okay. Uh, what about when you, you mentioned travel and talk about travel and still one of the the requirements that is in, and we still don't know when it's going to be dropped as far as anybody, uh, Canadians flying into the United States still have to provide that negative antigen test. Mm-hmm. Not the same if, if driving. Do you know if that's, uh, even anecdotally, is that leading to, say, busier parking lots or, or, or more busyness at the Bellingham Airport for people trying to get around that requirement? Um, gosh, I, I don't know. Um, I think BLI, Bellingham International Airport, uh, serves an audience, and I think it is still serving that audience in a very similar way. Um, and it tends to be a very value-oriented or a very specific destination. I mean, Bellingham, the airport isn't substantial. It's not huge. Um but where we are really able to compete on is proximity and then cost, especially with some of the, the value-oriented carriers that are at BLI. And I do know, because um, I had to fly to Vegas a, a couple, gosh, it was probably about a month ago now, and the plane was mostly Canadians. Um, and you can tell that from the parking lot alone. And so I do know that there's still those specific items that are driving uh, Canadian consumption and right. that, that they always have. Uh, and so I think what's interesting and valuable and new now is we have a new carrier with Southwest Airlines. Uh, so I think that was one of the reasons they chose Bellingham um, is to capture some of those Canadian uh, consumers. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And looking back again at cross-border shoppers and Canadians, like you said, seeing a lot of Canadian license plates there, how dependent are the businesses in Bellingham in your area on having those Canadians come? You know, we've always um, debated this question, right? Or, or at least thought about it. And from the the information and the decision points that we know on how particularly retailers choose location is based upon regional data. And the Canadian consumer generally does not enter that equation. So if a big box store is looking to uh, set up shop in Bellingham, they're primarily looking at Bellingham, Washington County numbers, maybe even a tri-county area. Um, There may be a strategic decision to be there. They know that the Canadian consumer plays a part, uh, but generally speaking, our retailers are here because they can, they see and identify a market um, because of the residents of Whatcom County and the, the surrounding counties uh, on the state side. Once they're here, they realize the value. Uh, and that is why a lot of our Bellingham stores are number one 
or very close to the top in the region. I would say our Canadian shoppers are one of the reasons we were able to get inventory that our community, um, the size of our community, wouldn't be able to um, draw. And so there's a there's a cross benefit there for sure. But dependent, no appreciative and uh, very valuing of that customer base. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, that is good to hear. Guy, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. That is Guy Ochio Grosso, President and CEO of the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce.